Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Guzala, and I know entirely too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's just the way it goes with me, as always, is the skeptic, the voice of the people, the little devil on my shoulder, Kristen Suttered. Hey, Kristen. Hello. It's uh, we, we took maybe our first week off, like full like week off. Like a true off. week off. Yeah. It happened. We're I... coming back from our summer break <laughs> our one week summer, our break. One week summer wow. break dreams yeah. really do come true uh how do you feel do you feel refreshed do you I feel, feel rejuvenated. did you forget about the podcast i i did i i forgot what is this show about again <laughs> yeah yeah right i haven't talked about the rock hall in my everyday life in weeks which e- yeah easy to do but yeah, so it's just been far from your mind. Yes. I mean, just I, which shouldn't be surprising, but it is kind of surprising. It has been coming up more than I would have liked to uh, it to. So, <laughs> you know, it was a true break for me. And thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you, Joe. Thank you to our listeners. Love you all. <laughs> of course. Uh, now, Kristen, you know what month this is. Oh, I want my MTV. Think hard. Okay. Get there. MTV. It's July. Want my MTV. There we go. <laughs> it is. I cannot believe. I really did take a break. I took a mental mm-hmm. break and I'm here. Okay. Yeah. Good. So uh, our, our bad pun theme month for July is July. Want my MTV. Uh, we're going and, you know, not this is as a- horrible as a stretch. It actually kind of even works. better than Fulai in all ways, I'll say. Yeah. So we, we've got an MTV heavy class for the Rock Hall this year. And uh, I think it's worth discussing those artists. And with us today, very excited to have a return guest. Uh, it, this will be her first solo outing with us. We put her through a grueling uh, hypothetical process of trying to determine who the inductees would be. I believe it was five to 10 years from now, which God bless her, but she's here and we've, it's going to be the perfect topic for her because she is the author of the recent 33 and a third on Duran Duran's Rio. Annie Zaleski returning to the show. Hey, Annie. Hello. Thank you for having me back. I'm so happy to have you here talking about probably what you'd prefer to talk about. Oh, you don't like just shooting into the an arrow in the dark and being like, well, if all of our other predictions come true, if this, then that. My brain is still tired from that one. That was, that yeah. was a lot. That was a lot. Yeah, God bless you for, for putting up with it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we, we figured this is the perfect time to have you back and to get to the heart of, uh, you know, what you have worked on for the past, you know, however many years the book has been published. It's exciting. It's at the Rock Hall. Absolutely. Like I have people who are in the store that are like, look, it's your book. And they'll like send me Ooh. pictures of it. I'm like, Ooh, it actually exists. And the band exists in the Rock Hall. It's so exciting. Such great timing, like impeccable timing. Wow. I didn't plan it. Everyone's like, oh, you did this. I'm like, no, look, if I had that kind of power, trust me, it would be using it. Yeah. It would have happened mm-hmm. sooner. Yeah. I, I guess you were just part of the of the momentum building that led to this, you know, your your book, they released a, an album like right within the past year or two. Absolutely. Last October, Future Past, also an excellent record. 
So, you know, it was all, you were part of the moment. You were, uh, I would say a pivotal part of the moment, but you know, it was all leading up to this, which is exciting. It is very exciting. I think, you know, I think I told you last time I was here, the one question I was asked the most when doing interviews last year was, why isn't Duran Duran in the Rock Hall? And then the second one was, why do they deserve to be in the Rock Hall? And so Ooh. I had that down pat. I had like, like literally almost every single interview. It was, I was, I was very, I was honestly kind of surprised. Yeah, it's like, that. that's interesting that it was the consistent topic to, to be brought up. Now, we haven't talked to you since you voted. Correct. I voted for them. Don't worry. I voted for them. And Kate, <laughs> and Kate Bush, which is Who now is having a moment. Dang. I yeah, I mean, I don't think it was any surprise that you voted for Duran Duran. Uh, and Kate Bush, w- would you be willing to share with us the rest of your ballot or is that a, is that a personal? Uh, I do. I have to look it up because I honestly, I know I voted for a tribe called Quest mm-hmm. and I have to look up, up and verify the rest of the things I voted for. So let me just grab my phone. Can you talk? Yeah, holding? for sure. Did you, did you, do you think you went full new wave and went Eurythmics? You know what? I did. I believe I did vote Eurythmics. I'm okay. just scrolling through my thousands of photos here, you know, because I've always been a big, I've loved Annie Lennox for many, many years. And just when you look at kind of, you know, their output as well, like it's just so, you know, this is not a Eurythmics episode, so I will not spoil anything. (laughs) So be quiet. Yeah. (laughs) I think I voted for Devo too. I need to find this here. Watch watch me totally be lying here. If I guessed it would be Devo or Priest. Oh, you know what? I did vote for Priest. Very good. Yeah. I like that. You know my ballot better than I do. And I actually voted for it. All right, wait a second. I actually put it in on time this time. Okay, so it was April. All photos. I always take pictures of it just in case. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. don't get it. I can be like, no, no, no. Here's my Here ballot. It was, I actually, yeah. yeah. Because you never, you can't trust the post office at this point. All right, there's other Rock Hall pictures. I should have brought this up, but no, it was, I, you know, I voted for Kate Bush the last few years too. And I did kind of go new wave because, you know, I, I think it's time. Oh, here we go. Wait, that's the official ballot that I didn't vote. There's the actual ballot. All right, so we're almost there. I just think that it's, uh, you know, I, I was really, really thrilled when the Go-Go's got in last year mm-hmm. because I thought that it was, you know, they were well overdue. All right, here's my ballot. Okay, so we have it. So it was Kate Bush, Duran Duran, Eurythmics, Judas Priest, and A Tribe Called Quest. Good ballot. A good ballot. And Very a- MTV heavy ballot. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a and great transition. a relatively lucky ballot as well. Yeah. A lot, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of votes, a lot of folks got in. Dreams came true. Uh, yeah. It, you know, like you said, the, the kind of new wave ballot or the new wave wave it's, it's time with a rock hall. It's probably past time. If you know, the rock hall was, you know, keeping now that we have, you know, it's just weird that there's such a new wave class eighties MTV class with Eminem, who's just fully a different generation, but yeah, with MTV and the fact that this is the our MTV theme month. I have to ask what your uh, connection is to MTV. Was it important to you as a youngster? It completely was. And I, so I'm a little bit younger. And so I was sort of the early nineties MTV as in coming home from school, watching Pauly Shore VJ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, sure. uh, the um pre total request live what what was the the early 90s like call-in show oh. and alternative nation and 120 minutes and yo mtv raps like starting in seventh grade i would just come home and literally just watch mtv for hours and this went all through high school i have tapes and tapes of mtv2 the like cool channel oh yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, wait, that was like it. the extended uh cable package I you would get absolutely I was all in. I still have, I have to figure out how to digitize all of my tapes because that's, that's how that and VH1, that's how I like, you know, explored music. That's how I initially got into Duran Duran. Like mm-hmm. my best friend reminded me, she's like, yeah, when Ordinary World was on MTV, you used to call me because you needed to make sure that I knew it was on. I you know <laughs> that and Temple the Dog, Hunger Strike. So oh, like yeah. I was... <laughs> I, I was, sure. you know, I, I, that it, it just, I grew up with that. And that was something for, you know, they still played videos so much. And then the real world of course started, but all of it, you know, I grew up in boring suburban Ohio. So this was all like completely so fancy and so different and so much, you know, all the artists were cool. And so, yeah, so I was very, very connected to MTV. Yeah. It's like MTV is almost like aspirational 
Yeah. Or, or just like a, a complete fantasy world that you're looking through the window into. But that was not even remotely cool enough to like be a part of, but like I could pretend <laughs> I could, I could watch everyone else and hopefully, you know, one day be as cool. I was Daria basically is who I was. Oh uh, yeah. Or, sure. <laughs> but Daria was cool. She was cool. Like I think now she's almost cooler because back in, you know, when the cartoon was on, she was the outcast. But now if you're a Daria, you're super cool. So it's kind of flipped. My she sister was, she and was, I were Daria and Quinn for Halloween this year. <laughs> That's awesome. But I was actually Quinn just <laughs> randomly because I had like uh, the pair of jeans that, that I could wear for Quinn. We're, we're yeah. both, we're a two Daria household. So yeah. uh, <laughs> double Darias. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So you mentioned, you know, your, your generation of MTV is kind of post Duran Duran's heyday. How did you get into the group? Well, it was, it was cool because when I, so around the time that I started getting back into music and started getting back into MTV, they released the wedding album. So that was in 1993. Mm -hmm. And so they were all over MTV, you know, Ordinary World. Come Undone. Too much information. Those were like the three singles. And I saw the videos all the time. And then our alternative radio station would play them, but they'd also play a lot of 80s music. So I heard a lot of 80s Duran Duran at the time. And so, and because I live near this chain of record stores called The Exchange that had the best 25 cent bin, you would mm -hmm. like, it was like they had CDs at 25 cents, 50 cents, a dollar, and then 250 and $5. That was like their like CDs. And so you could get, but they all always had like this amazing stuff in like the 25 cent bin. So like I got a copy of Duran Duran's greatest hits for like, I don't know, 50 cents, just something ridiculous like that. And so- I, you know, I was able to get access to all that stuff. And so I, I kind of came to the 90s Duran Duran and 80s Duran Duran at the same time. And it was interesting because that was sort of what Capitol Records was doing, marketing them. Like all of their B-sides to the new singles were their 80s, 80s songs. So mm. I was like, huh, well, it worked on me. Very good. You know, good job, Capitol. So, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Rope you in with the new stuff <laughs> exactly. and then turn you on to the, to the OG classics. Yep. Because when did Ordinary World come out? When was that? Let me see. Because I know the record. So very, very, very late 1992. So that was sort of like the preview of their 1993 record. Ahead of the release of the LP. Yeah. Because I remember, I remember that song being out. And then it's like when you learn that you know, I don't know. It's like when a, when a band has like a later thing and all the, it's like when my aunt told me that George Michael had been in Wham and I was like, what, <laughs> you yep. know, uh, it, it's, it, it's like that. It's like, oh, the ordinary world guys are also the, you know, hungry, like the wolf guys, what, you know, you're trying to, uh, make it make sense as, as someone who comes in through a different, you know, era of a band. I don't, it's funny because I've tried to remember when I first heard their 80s songs and I can't remember. So I don't know if it's one of those things where like, you know, when I was a kid, I would just hear them on the radio. So I was familiar with them or, you know, VH1 played a lot of classic videos or maybe MTV did. I don't know, but like, I don't remember a time when I didn't know the videos, you know, but I was one of those weird kids. Like I was on the AOL message board for Duran Duran, like posting. And oh, so wow. I, oh yeah. And like, I bought, I somehow there was some person that was selling like all of their eighties, like merch. And so like, I bought a 1984 shirt for like two bucks back in the nineties. And so I was buying up all sorts of Duran Duran stuff. And so, and all this off of that greatest hits kind of like intro. It was greatest hits. And then, so out of, uh, I got Rio out of the library, my, my town library. And then oh, I yeah. bought, I was able to get Rio in their debut on vinyl for like, you know, two bucks each. Cause they were just sort of, no one cared about vinyl at that point. So I just mm -hmm. accumulated all this stuff. Cause I think like, I have like a copy of big thing. I think I got for like a dollar on cassette. So I just, you know, I was a big, big eighties fan and I was a big sort of new wave fan. So like I was the weird kid in high school, you know, who I love the Smiths and I love Echo and the Bunnymen and like anything eighties, I was all in on that. And so I was listening, like to me, I was still listening to a lot of nineties music and modern music, but like, I really wanted to live in the eighties. And so that was, so I basically just bought up anything I could. And I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, 
at the time, 80s nostalgia was not yet in vogue. It wasn't like a as cool as it is now. It's weird because like in a sense, no, but there, so when alternative radio kind of, you know, came into vogue in the nineties, they would have these like flashback lunches or retro lunches. And I so- remember Tainted Love being a very huge song in the late nineties or like the mid nineties or whatever, like when alternative radio was on the air, I remember being like, Oh yeah. Like, like, but more, it was like a greatest hits, like compilation style of eighties hits that you would be into. I feel like that was, it was cool to know like tainted love and, you know, dead or alive spin me round, you know, absolutely those kind of songs or like, you know, whatever was on the Romy and Michelle's high school reunion oh, yeah. soundtrack, you know, that kind of stuff. But it was very like one, it was like hits based, you know, I think we were kind of still, you know, maybe letting us know where we would head with singles culture. But like, I, I feel like it was kind of that it wasn't like you thought of the 80s as a genre rather than like being that into a certain artist. Am I overstating that? That's that's what I recall. That makes a lot of sense to me, because I think that's what they did. Like radio sort of played it like here's our like bonus flashbacks, you know, kind of like, you know, classic rock radio would play like an 80s song now or something like mm-hmm. that. Like they were. It was basically like, you know, alternative radio. This is our heritage. So we're going to do like this, like big hit that you know as an 80s kid or as a you know young teenager in the 90s you might not know it originally but you're like oh this is pretty cool because there were so many compilations like that's what I remember is like Rhino Records put out compilations I had this like weird living in oblivion like five cd set I won off a radio station but it had like weird quasi 80s hits from like you know, bands you wouldn't remember. And there was this other, like, I just remember, I remember getting this tape for like, I don't even know who put it out, but it had like Gary Newman's cars on it. And I think it did have tainted love on it. Oh yeah. And I was cars obsessed by Gary. Like, I feel like new wave eighties music was like available and around more in the nineties than it. I mean, not to say more than it was in the eighties, but I mean, I don't know. I wasn't super listening to the radio in the eighties. I was very young, but uh, I feel like in the nineties, like, I thought of the eighties as new wave, whereas Mm -hmm. maybe when the eighties were happening, it was much more hair metal in the, the places that I was living and being Tennessee, particularly, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. It felt like the eighties was quickly commodified and then sold. Hmm, Wow. Interesting for a decade that was all about (laughs) decadence, you know, and and capitalism. (laughs) Yeah. But was kind of, I, in my recollection sold and and still to this day to some degree although i think that we've changed the narrative a little bit but that it was sold as like kind of frivolous and like something yeah. that like a a puritan or, or someone who has more discerning taste would kind of roll their eyes at yeah well mm-hmm. we made it through the 80s uh that kind of thing it, it was very surface it was sort of like you know look it's crazy hair and it's neon and you know look at these clothes like it was still sort of seen as goofy i don't think it was taken very seriously and you know you could you know if you dug deep you know because i really like howard jones and howard jones is very mm-hmm. earnest you know and the mm-hmm. thompson twins because i was obsessed with like 16 candles and john hughes movies and so there was a Thompson twin song in there. And so it's like, okay, you know, so you had some of that stuff, but like, but some of the stuff was honestly really hard to find, you know, like I remember you couldn't just like rent movies or like some of them weren't even on DVD or even VHS. I don't know if this is true or not, but I always had this feeling that like Rio was hard to find by Duran Duran. It was like, I got it out of the library, but it was some sort of like, you couldn't get the CD easily. And I don't know if that's just like a fake memory or if that was actually the case. Cause I mean, I didn't have a ton of money. It's not like I was like, I'm going to go to the record store and buy like five $15 CDs every week Mm -hmm. but like you know it was it it, it felt like you were still hunting for something you know you still had to like you know put the tape recorder up to the radio if you heard a song you liked because you might not hear it again for a really long time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i had uh i had many versions of that phenomenon you both music and tv of just like kind of obsessively uh worrying about the fleeting nature of content (laughs) and i'm never going to be able to experience it again i have to capture it somehow yep Let's take a huge uh, leap in time from then to what brings you to want to write 
this book. Well, it's funny because I, so I started listening to Rio when I was in high school. So this was like in the mid nineties and I always really liked the record. I mean, it was just one of them, you know, it was, I found it you know, very appealing. I have my little tape still that I dubbed from the library. So, you know, it was always something that I, you know, really liked. And when the 33 and a third series launched in the 2000s, you know, at some point I, I kind of was doing just research or just like, you know, going down some rabbit hole on the internet. And I found that Rio had this really interesting backstory about how, you know, it was reissued a bunch of times in the US and it took a while to kind of become a success. And it was so bizarre to me because it's, you know, by this point, this was like the late 2000s and, you know, Duran Duran, they had reformed, they were playing arenas, like they were a big band. And I'm like, well, that's weird. This is a huge record. So I always wanted to know why. So I started pitching this book to the 33 and a third series in 2007. Whoa. Yeah. And that's when, so they put out Red Carpet Massacre around that time. That was the record with Justin Timberlake. Mm. And I think Timbaland was on it. And so they, and like the killers had just come out. Is this the one with that insane cover on it? What what, did we talk about this? We talked about their, their covers album. uh, With Rob recently. Yes. Okay. So Red Carpet Massacre. And so this was, Uh, but like the killers were like, oh my God, I love Duran Duran. And the killers of course were huge at that point. So there were all of these and like Scissor Sisters was out and gossip. And so like, Mm -hmm. they were like the hip influence. There was kind of like electro clash was kind of like on the radio at that time. Yeah. LCD sound system was like breaking through. Yeah. All that. So they were kind of like this, like, you know, cool, hip, you know, influence. So I pitched the book and it didn't get taken. And then I pitched it again in 2009 and it still didn't get taken. And so, you know, I got busy just doing other work and things like that. So I kind of put my, you know, proposal on the shelf, you know, in an inbox somewhere because I never delete any emails. And so, but I, so there was a call for pitches back in like, I think 2017, 2018, and I wasn't going to pitch again. Cause I was like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of busy, but then I was talking with a friend and he's like, oh, I might pitch. Oh, I'm not going to. And this was like several days before the deadline. And I was like, you know what? I need to pitch this. I'm going to be so mad if I don't actually pitch this after a decade and someone else does it and it's not me, I'm going to be so upset. And so I basically <laughs> right. like nothing like the pressure of a deadline. And so I sat down and kind of went through everything and I found out a couple like months later that I got it and like they accepted it. I was like, oh my God, I I got an email and I was like shaking because this is, I, and it's funny because friends were like, all you would do is talk about how you want to do this book. And so I think I must've talked about it. Like my husband's like, when we met, all you were doing was talking about wanting to do this book. So I'm like, okay, well, I finally, you know, put my proposal where my mouth is, I guess. And I finally, and I finally wrote a good proposal that convinced them. And that was back in 2018. Is that what you said? 2018. Wow. So long journey. Amazing. Very long journey. I don't want to mire you too much with minutia, but like, what is, what is the process like? Like, do you start to, I mean, I got, I gather it's a lot of, you know, research, you know, like getting into, you know, archival, whatever, but yeah, what's the walk, walk us through it. So, I mean, luckily uh, you know, part of it was the research I was, it was done because I've been thinking about it for so many years. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, good. I have this, like, you know, this, this base. So I knew for this book, I wanted to do interviews because I wanted to figure out, you know, how did this become successful? Um, you know, I think just because, you know, early MTV was so interesting and so weird, you know, let's, let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. And also Duran Duran has been documented so thoroughly. I'm like, I want to see if I could, you know, tell a story with some new stuff because there's some fans that know absolutely everything. And, you know, and I didn't want to just do a book that rehashed the same old stuff. So, you know, I, I approached the band and said, Hey, I want to do, you know, do new interviews for that. And, you know, luckily they were into it. You know, I reached out to other people who were on the record, you know, so Malcolm Garrett, who's this amazing graphic designer and did a lot of the design of the early Duran Duran stuff. I talked to him, I talked to some record label people. I talked to the, the musician, Andy Hamilton, who did the iconic Rio sax solo. I mean, you have to do that. <laughs> and, um, and I just talked to just, you know, I've talked to some MTV VJs. I talked to radio DJs. I talked to fans who, you know, can kind of speak to it. So I ended up doing, I think, over 50 interviews for the book. Wow. It's a short book. It's, you know, I think whatever my word count was, I blew right past it. I don't even remember what it was. I just didn't 
I just turned it in and I was just like, here you go. And no one said mm-hmm. anything. So I was like, cool. <laughs> but I, I paired that with archival research. I did a lot of research like using Billboard. There's a website called worldradiohistory.com that has this amazing treasure trove of like trade magazines. So radio you know, sent out to radio stations, sent out to, you know, billboards and radio and records and cash box. And so I started digging into that to see like what info was there. And those were really helpful too, because I was writing this during the pandemic. So libraries were closed. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. There was also yeah. that. So it was sort of like whatever I could order on eBay, had at home mm-hmm. or could access on the internet was sort of what I was limited to, but I did a ton of research and obviously a lot of listening to, and just kind of, you know, synthesized it all together. Synthesized. Yeah. (laughs) I guess kind of pun intended. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we really wanted to talk to you about this, but also one of the reasons I wanted to do another Duran Duran episode is like the one we've done was a long time ago. before we kind of got serious about getting into the nitty gritty about these artists used to kind of just be like, who do I know that will show up to my house? And <laughs> that's what the episode will be. No shade to Dave Schilling, who did our Duran Duran so episode much. back then. We appreciate it. But, you know, that was before we kind of shifted the focus. So I want I wanted to make sure that we did a, an episode that was, you know, comes from a place of someone who's well-researched, you know, someone who is uh, a big enough fan and uh, authority on the subject so that we could, you know, get into some things mm-hmm. that uh, we weren't able to. Cool. And uh, one of the things I'd, I mean, we don't have to, again, we could spend hours, I'm sure, oh, talking yeah. about the things you know, <laughs> things about <laughs> to bore you. But, you know, what I would like to do, and, you know, we'll, we'll focus primarily on the Rio album, obviously, but I want to talk a little bit about the band's kind of lead up to that album and kind of like to provide the context of where they were when Rio was recorded and then eventually released? So it's, I think it was funny because I, uh, one of the things I did is when I kind of sat down, um, you know, and like put together like dates and research and stuff, I think what surprised me is how quickly Rio came together, you know, kind of after like how the band started, like their first show was July 16th, 1980 with their current, with their like golden age lineup. And so that's, Andy Taylor, John Taylor, Roger Taylor, Simon LeBon, and Nick Rhodes. So it was that was July 16th, 1980, and Rio came out in May of 82. So that's like less than Fast. two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And that in Rio came um, a little less than a year after their debut record. So uh, that entire era was very, very compressed. And, you know, and, you know, on some level, I knew that when I actually sat down and, you know, kind of did dates and stuff, I was like, wow, that was, that was really fast. And the band said too, everything kind of blended together. And so, you know, they had this kind of cachet of songs that they recorded for their debut record, which was, you know, so that, that would have, that had planet earth. that had girls on film those are kind of the songs that people know and they still get played and so it was very roxy music and japan influenced and you know they were still kind of trying to find their sound but as they were kind of on the road playing all those songs they were already having all these other new songs kind of starting to percolate and they were on the road like they basically spent near like an unbelievable amount of time in 1981 on the road. So a lot of Rio was sort of informed by them going around the world for the first time, like, you know, playing New York and playing the USA and like, you know, touring across America and like going to Europe and things like that. And so they had all this excitement and all these new experiences. And that really, really kind of informed how the sound of the album, you know, the name was Rio, John Taylor came up Mm -hmm. with it. And, you know, it represented something, you know, obviously very, you know, fancy and, you know, you know, I'm in Rio and it's like this like carnival time and it's really exciting and things like that. Had and they so, gone to Rio? I don't think so. And so that's what's <laughs> Had so they funny met a woman it. named Rio? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's funny because Rio is metaphorical. The woman is, oh. you know, depending on, you know. She's uh, every woman. Ex- so Rio, funny enough, is America. It's a metaphor for America. And weird I mean, that they would say strange you know, choice of words be pretty fun her name is memphis like i don't know i i i, I whatever 
So that's, yeah. So that's, that's kind of how it all, and they had really kind of gotten to know each other as players because they hadn't really, you know, they started getting together in basically summer of 1980. So they kind of, you know, really gelled as a live band and started, you know, cause they used to demo like that's, you know, what they used to do. Cause they had demo time, you know, kind of like young bands and they would go mm-hmm. to the studio and do things. And so some songs came out of that, some songs came out of other things. And so it's, it's funny in hindsight that it's this really, you know, famous, totemic record and you look how it was kind of put together and it's basically it could have been just like any other band's second record it, you know that it yeah. just became a success but other bands make records like that and it doesn't become a success so mm-hmm. there wasn't anything necessarily like super super special about it and just to be clear you talk about the band getting to know each other musically yes uh for the uninitiated three tailors None of them related. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> that can you be confusing. still have to say that. Exactly. You know, and I think, you know, I forget who is it. There, there was like an article, I think, in The Guardian. And like, I think it was, it was like Nick Rhodes. That was like, basically like, are you kidding me? Another Taylor? Like, really? <laughs> you know, but it, it worked. It worked. And also worth noting, Roger Taylor, not the <laughs> first. Queen drummer drummer named Roger Taylor to be inducted into the rock. Oh, hall. wow. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of Taylors. Uh, there were already, I mean, James Taylor, there were already some Taylors in the hall, Yeah. but uh, yeah, these are three unrelated Taylors uh, in Duran Duran. I know, I know all Duran Duran fans know that, but you know, for our listeners who don't now, you know, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll get into the actual recording and the story of the Rio album. So we'll cool. be right back. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope over your break, you. You know, you earnestly talked about the weather. And it wasn't yeah, small it wasn't talk. Small it talk. was for real. It was, it, yeah, you had things to say about it. All right, so let's yeah, let's talk about the recording of the of the Rio album. We kind of talked about the lead up to it, but uh, and I'm curious, like, was there anything new? You, I mean, I'm sure there must have been that, things you learned about the recording of this album. Absolutely. So, um, so they recorded it in early 82 at air studios in London. And so that was the, the studio founded by George Martin, the Beatles, uh, a Beatles fame. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the big story that everyone kind of knows is that Paul McCartney was also recording at the same time. And he would like, you know, stick his nose in and like, you know, be nice to the band and everyone in the band, of course, was like, Oh my God, that's a beetle. Like they were, you know, they were all like very deferential, you know? And so like everyone remembered that, you know, when I talked to them, which is obviously you would, you know, so they worked with Colin Thurston who had worked with Bowie and the human league and later worked with talk talk. And, you know, so he did their first record as well. So that was kind of the same. Um, I, you know, basically it was kind of a bigger studio. It was a, you know, a more well-appointed studio and, you know, they worked very, very hard. It wasn't, you know, it was basically, they, they recorded a little bit longer. Um, I think the coolest thing I learned, and Simon Lebon actually tweeted about this when he did a, a listening party, was that Colin got this like big container of like percussion instruments. And Simon was like, this is cool. This is amazing. And he like basically, you know, started getting creative. So some of the flourishes on the record are actually Simon, you know, like adding, you know, like, oh, there's this cool thing that's in the studio. Let me kind of, you know, play around with it. So I thought that was cool. And so that that was kind of the, one of the things that I learned recording. So he just like pick up like a wood block or something? Like what are they we talking? They had like, what did he say? It was like a container of percussions. It would be like, I don't even know, like he, he didn't give too many specifics, mm-hmm. Okay, but it was just like you know like here's some stuff you know get creative i mean it makes sense like if you're in school you know and like you're like teacher will be like you know hey here's a bunch of stuff like be creative with it and i guess he you know he suspected right that somebody would gravitate toward it mm-hmm. and so like you know on last chance on the stairway there's some stuff you know and when you listen to it you're like oh yeah that is that is there okay and so, so that was cool, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. so I think that's kind of, um, you know, the saxophonist, Andy Hamilton, he, you know, basically said that, you know, that Nick Rhodes told me that, you know, they had a very good idea of what they wanted the solo to sound like on the sax solo. So like Andy Hamilton came in and the funny thing is that Andy told me that the key can be a little bit challenging for a saxophonist because of 
uh, you know, the way he explained it was, it was more kind of theory based that, you know, it's in this key and that if it's a rock song, you know, this is better than that. And so he said, that's a little challenging. So I, that actually I thought was interesting because I didn't realize that. When they're recording this, they have not really broken big in America yet. No. So they were still, they were pretty big in the UK and Australia. They had really connected in both places. And in America, they were sort of big in dance clubs. You know, I think one of the things I learned, which was kind of, which was probably not surprising, is that the girls on film video, which if people aren't aware, there is a edited version that's still pretty risque. And then there's like the like X-rated version where there's nudity and lots of suggestive gestures like mud wrestling and there's like whipped cream and like you look at it and you're like okay you, even now you're like wow this is this is like i don't know if this get made today it's a little bit uh, too hot for tv yeah um but that got a lot of attention in america like un, unsurprisingly like billboard wrote a whole column on it there was like an associated press article that you know basically talked about the video and so they got actually a lot of mainstream press from that which was actually kind of funny um but mtv was playing them a little bit that planet earth video at least got played a little bit but it wasn't you know the, the thing that's kind of a bummer is that there isn't a lot of kind of video checks or air checks from very very early mtv like august 81 to maybe you know i don't know like fall of 82 you know there, there's like 81 like you could almost like go on youtube and be like okay this is the vid check i know this is the video check i know you know the first day is very very documented and there's some other ones there's one at like the end of august 81 but it's hard to know when and how Duran Duran was played. You have to kind of see if there's any like press references. So I found a couple of magazine articles that mentioned, you know, that the videos were played. And some of the people I interviewed told me that too. But mm -hmm. it was hard to say how much, you know, video airplay they got before Rio in America. And when you say video check, you mean there isn't like they didn't, there's no archive of the playlist? Right. There's no archive of the playlist and like what people, I mean, kind of what we were talking about earlier, what people would do was like, if you were lucky enough to have a VCR mm -hmm. or a Betamax player, you would like have, and if you were lucky enough to have MTV, because MTV wasn't in a lot of households, you would like basically record hours of it to see, you know, let it run basically. And so there just right. isn't, there just isn't a lot of that. And so may, maybe someone somewhere, and if you're out there, please get in touch with me because, you know, there's nothing more I like than watching outdated TV from 40 years ago to see what random treasures there are. You and Joe might have. <laughs> I'm yeah, that's <laughs> definitely have stuff. A party. When I had, yes. when I had COVID recently, I definitely went down some wormholes. Uh, yes. But yeah, so I, it's, it. I absolutely get it. And I'm thinking like, you got to put up some ads in Tulsa. Cause I think that's one of the markets exactly. where MTV was. Uh, in the very beginning. And that's, you know, that was, you know, Billboard. And if you talk to Rob Tannenbaum, he might've mentioned this. Cause like, yeah, Billboard did this whole like article special in like October of 81. And like they interviewed people and they're like, yeah, there were these like Buggles records that were like <laughs> collecting dust. And then, you know, MTV came in and suddenly I can't keep them in stock. And it was like, a one-to-one -one correlation. And, you know, yes. I, I did talk to someone, you know, here that they mentioned, because in Cleveland, where I grew up, all the suburbs had it, but Cleveland proper did it. And that's very huh. common. So all the kind of suburban, that was actually cool for once because they had MTV. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, and that's kind of what kept them going. It kept yep. the record companies giving MTV those, the rights to the videos is because they could prove like on a map, here's where we are in the market and then also look at the sales of these artists that were playing and it was a direct correlation. Exactly. And, you know, not to get too far ahead, but they found that with Duran Duran and Rio, like it was, it was like literally like, you know, I think there was, there was an article in like early 83 and I think it was in the Dallas area. And they said, you know, places that had MTV, you know, all of these things were selling places that didn't, they weren't selling at all. And it's so funny to think about that now because, you know, geography, because of the way streaming is and the way you can buy records now, geography is not a big deal, but back then it was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let, let's let's pick up back on the uh, on the Rio story. In general, would you say not a particularly dramatic, not like one for the behind the music stories in terms of the <laughs> recording of the album? I think the only potential like, you know, behind the music type thing was Hold Back the Rain was one of the last songs that kind of ended up making the record. Yeah. 
And Simon actually wrote the lyrics uh, to John Taylor because John was, um, you know, overindulging a little bit too much and Simon was worried about him. So he, he said this in an interview that he wrote the lyrics and he slid a copy underneath like John's apartment door and then, you know, had another, you know, copy in the studio. And so if you listen to that song and it's very sweet because they've been playing it on their current tour. And so it's kind of this like, you know, you know, we're in this together, you know, please come back to me. You know, it's, it's, you know, as, as a early 20 something guy, you're, you mm -hmm. know, you're expressing affection and you know worry and anxiety for your bandmate. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was one of the ones and that was, I think the last song to really, really come together mm -hmm. on the record. Like it's dated, like in this, in the liner notes, it's like dated, like March, March of 82 or something like that. Uh, that is sweet. Did John take it as sweet or was he, I mean, I know when you're in that type of position, Position, you can be kind of insecure and like not really hear the message and, and maybe, you know, have a, a adverse reaction to it. You know, I think Simon said he's not sure if, if, if John really responded at the time. And I don't know if he's actually responded since I'll have to I'll have to interview him again and be like, did you actually ever respond? You're actually playing this. Right. Um, yeah. So they, they record the album and then let's talk about the, the release of it a little bit. So, yes. So they I mean, it's that the record was finished in like very, very late March, early April, 82. And it comes out in May of 82. You know, in between that, the band, uh, you know, they kept, they basically went on the road right away. They went to Sri Lanka and they recorded videos for Hungry Like the Wolf and um, Save a Prayer and then Lonely in Your Nightmare. And then they went to Australia and Japan and they started the Rio tour like in mid-April. And then the record came out in May and it got some airplay in America. You know, it was very popular in the UK. It went to number two in the charts. Mm -hmm. And in America, you know, it got, it, it got like radio airplay, like different things they they toured in America in June and July and into August. And so it got some airplay, but it just was not, it was not going anywhere on the billboard charts. Like it was selling. Okay. It wasn't amazing. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of like, it was languishing basically, you know, compared to like how they were doing in other markets, it was basically like a failure. Right. And then what turns the tide? Can we attribute it to MTV? We can attribute it. Yes. So one of the one of the puzzle pieces is MTV. Um, I think one of the coolest things I found when doing research was that MTV added the Hungry Like the Wolf video into rotation in on the, the week of July 3rd, 1982, which was like uh, way early than, you know, than I uh, knew. I had no mm -hmm. idea that it was that early because the song wasn't a hit until, you know, early 1983 in America. So like, that's how it, like, it was a single in America and it was getting some airplay. It just wasn't connecting. So that's how early and ahead MTV was. It was like July of 82. So that was part of it. Part of it was they decided to reach we, we talked about, they remixed part of the record. And so they worked with this guy called David Kirschenbaum who had actually signed Joe Jackson to a &M. and he remixed, he, he remixed hungry like the wolf and he remixed basically the first half of the record. So they reissued the record with like some new remixes. And what they were trying to do was like, quote unquote, Americanized Duran Duran sound. Yeah, does it sound different or better? Have you heard in a B, have you a B tested it? I have. And just the funny thing is, is, you know, now, like it doesn't sound markedly different. Like if you listen to it, you can be like, okay, because basically what they did to make it more, you know, and I'm using air quotes, American, mm -hmm. is yeah. that they kind of put the synthesizers in the back. They put the Simon's vocals up front. They put the guitars a little bit more up front and they emphasized the drum. My name is Rio and she dances on the sand. Because rock radio at that time was like, Rush and Fleetwood Mac and Journey mm -hmm. and Van Halen. And that was not Duran Duran. And so they right. were trying to kind of make it so the song would fit a little bit more on radio. So they did that. But then they also, they reissued, they issued an EP called the Carnival EP that was also a kind of emphasized their dance remix side. So like, it, it's it's funny in hindsight, because there were like all of these random disparate things happening. So it's like, oh, Duran Duran's a dance band. So we're going to put an EP that's danceable, but we're gonna, also going to have a song for rock radio because it needs to sound like this. But then they also have the music video. And so it was like all of these things kind of combining basically to kind of help you know, give momentum to them because mm. they ended up opening for Blondie in like 1982. And, you know, from what I've read, basically by that point, they were really starting, they were starting to get some momentum and connect. Like they were getting, like they got an encore and like, and so they were actually getting a pretty, oh, the pretty opener getting an encore. Exactly. Which for Blondie. I have literally is, never, ever heard of that. 
unless it's like a shared bill. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And they were not. It was definitely like very, you know, opening. There, there's some bootlegs on YouTube. And so there's it's definitely opening. Act. So there were these remixes to try to Americanize some of these songs. But the the songs that ended up charting were the original mixes, right? So in America, no. And so so basically what it's it's. I swear to God, it's like, you know, that GIF that you see, or it's like the guy with like the whiteboard and there's like the equations and stuff like yes, that. Like you see. <laughs> That's exactly what tried to track Rio's different versions is. Right. Um, but it, so they ended up, so Hungry Like the Wolf was issued as a single, didn't do much. It was later reissued. And on one side was the kind of David Kirschenbaum mix, which was like a shorter mix. And then there was also kind of the dance remix, which was called the night version, which actually had come out in the UK in May uh, already. So they basically had like two different versions, mixes of the songs that weren't the original album version that ended up being on a single. So... And but but the so, the versions that you would know as like a listener to the radio hearing now, it on the radio, yeah, it is more like I think the original. And it's funny because yeah. I've, I've shazammed it before. If I hear it on the radio, I'm like, what version are they actually playing? Mm -hmm. Because there are just so many different remixes. And I think it's it's like the U.S. single mix or something like that. So mm -hmm. there's there's this, and I should plug. There's this amazing website called DuranCompilations.com, and they there is someone who's gone and tracked every single remix, every single version. Like if you have this version of the CD, this is what you have. And it's it's incredible for starters. And it's it's very detailed so mm -hmm. that they kind of break it down. And, and it so, sounds like the versions are not different enough to be able to discern just from listening to it. You can hear them. Like, you, like I mean, for some of the ones, like the, the, night, re the night version is a dance remix. So you hear it and they're like, yeah, this is definitely different. But some of the other ones, it's like, you really have to listen mm -hmm. to be like, okay, that's, that's different. Okay. You know, I mean, but the one of them, uh, the, the, you can tell it's a different version because the woman who's moaning at the end, it's like super high in the mix. And it's like extreme, like you're almost like, this should like make it not be on the radio, but it actually got here. Yeah, it's obscene. Exactly. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so these things are all contributing to yeah. uh, an album that initially was not super successful in America, but the fortunes start to turn over what sounds like a relatively long period of time, longer than you'd expect for an album to, to turn around like that. Absolutely. You know, so it came out in May of 82 in America and then, you know, Hungry Like the Wolf really started connecting sort of like later in the year. So like November, you know, later November, December, and then really took off in um, early 83. And, you know, what else, what also helped them is that at the very start rock radio, there was an edict um, from Lee Abrams. So I actually talked to, he's a very famous um, radio figure who said, you need to start playing more new music. So there was also this little window of time where radio stations were supposed to play new bands. So oh. Duran Duran also got to kind of sneak in that as well. So it was like literally like the most perfect timing. Like you could not have, it was so lucky that everything really collided the way it did and the timing it did. Like had they come maybe a year before or a year after, it might not have worked out that way. Wow. Yeah. The stars really aligned. And so then a, a lot of the songs off of Rio are charting really well on like the Hot 100 as the album itself is, is climbing the album charts. Absolutely. I mean, the funny thing is that in America or in, in the UK, basically all of the singles had been, you know, charted, been successful and come and gone by the time Rio took off in America. And so, you know, so Hungry Like the Wolf was a hit and then Rio became a hit. And then what they ended up doing, um, they, they put out a one-off single that was not on Rio. Is there something I should know? That was the number one single in the UK and that ended up getting a US release as well. Yeah, I definitely know that one, I think. A big hit, exactly. Yeah. I definitely, I think, know that one. <laughs> LOL. Okay, pull it together. Is there something we should know about your mental state? Yeah, exactly. Good question. <laughs> now, did they, add, is, did they tack, is there something I should know onto an album? They did. And so this is where it also gets... Um, hilariously non-linear is that so Duran Duran's debut record didn't do anything in America it was it didn't even chart on the the top 200 and so what they did is once Rio became a hit the first album started getting some more attention and so they basically ended up 
they they issued girls on film to radio so that became a radio hit that also got mtv play and we're talking spring of 83 this is like two years after the record came out almost Mm -hmm. and so then they tacked is there something i should know onto the debut record like they put a new they put a new um photo on the cover so it was like 1983 duran duran and then they reissued that and that became a hit then so it was like this whole like in america their whole trajectory was just completely ridiculous like they were on uh, saturday night live for the first and only time in march of 83 and they played hungry like the wolf and girls on film because that basically was getting airplay by that point mm-hmm. but that's yeah the two two separate albums out of order yeah. you know yeah i mean it's it's it funny how like to see the record label machine too as like something gets popular how can we make as much money (laughs) as possible you know going through the back catalog and like you know getting everything out there and yeah it was like 83 is really i mean we we had a whole episode about 83 because a lot of this year's inductees were having tremendous success whether it was rhythmics with sweet dreams or even like dolly parton with islands in the stream or Lionel Richie with Cancel Down, like all these things were kind of coming to a head in this year. And I think, you know, we talked a lot about Duran Duran because they were just like that. This was yeah. like the breakout year for them in America. It was funny because, you know, that was their breakout year and they were recording a new record. So they basically like did not, they didn't tour in America. They didn't tour in America until 84. So they pretty much like in their absence, they became like the biggest thing on earth, you know? And so it was, which is like, cause they didn't predict it. You know, no one knew that that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, we're just going to keep going forward and doing things. I mean, it's funny because um, when is there something I should know became a hit, like they were trying to stop record stores from importing the single. Like Billboard was all reporting that they were like, you know, no, no, no. They were going to like go after places for importing the single. And, you know, and so basically it's like good luck trying to stop that. And so I think that's part of the reason why they were like, okay, we're going to issue it, but we're going to do it this way because, you know, there was just so much demand for the band. It just, just took off. Duran demand. It's Duran Thank Mania. you everyone. <laughs> Demand, demand. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't know if there's anything else with with the story of the the recording and release. I was thinking maybe we could talk about kind of the legacy yeah. uh, of the album if we feel like we're at that point and haven't skipped over anything worth worth mentioning. The only like weird sort of exclamation point is that Save a Prayer was released as a single in America in 1985. <laughs> Several years after because hmm. arena their live record came out and there was a live version but also a regular version so like they were already doing all their side projects and save a prayer was on the charts in 85 and it was a hit in like 1982 in england so like that's they that's how much the record label was like we need to we this is a guaranteed hit let's do this let's print so the money uh yeah well i, I want to talk about the the legacy of this album because i think it's not unfair to say at the time the you know critical reaction to the band overall but also to the Rio album was not particularly glowing it wasn't and i only found you know and it was interesting so i didn't find a lot of reviews of the record per se that there were you know it's weird to think about now that's such a great record it was like hard to find you know people writing about it but i didn't find a whole ton of reviews of the record and so that was that just kind of shows you the band was not like a must review and you know there were some people like trouser press gave it a pretty fair shake and did a pretty detailed review but yeah other places were just like what is this you know people I think like the Guardian said, you know, like they like just completely slammed Simon Le Bon's lyrics and other places were just like, seriously, like they, they got no respect at all. And, you know, they were considered a video band. Like when they came mm-hmm. back, people, I don't know how this was possible, but they were sort of, you know, they were, they were considered this band that was like MTV made, like not that they could play live, not that they were had played live. And it was, mm. it was very bizarre how they were sort of positioned or how people sort of misunderstood them. Because I mean, by that point, they had been playing live for years. They had been practicing live for years. Like they were a pretty tight live band and people were just like videos, videos, videos. Mm-hmm. So you know, fans liked it. You it's know, like fans they were a victim that. of their own success in a way. It's exactly. like the fact that how they broke through was not what purists would consider the, the correct path. You know, they're supposed to play bars for exactly. you know a couple of years and they move up to bigger venues. Like you can't yeah. just 
have a sexy video and shoot straight to the top, man. It's not how it works. Exactly. Ask, yeah. There was skepticism. It was very like, what is this? These new new breed of bands, you know, they're not coming up, you know, they're not Journey and REO Speedwagon, you know, playing their playing their hits. Like they had flashy videos and they were good looking and you know, they were fashionable. Yeah, that part is AKA it, I, I think about yeah. uh, like oh, that's a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of but the fact that they were hot. Um, I think also was probably difficult to reconcile if you considered yourself like a serious music fan of, you know, serious records and, you know, the fact that they were good looking and they wound up, you know, on Tiger Beat and like, you know, that they were, they had a lot of, it's, you know, and we've talked about this before, Kristen, the fact that, you know, there were young women who liked Duran Duran Mm -hmm. and then that in itself suddenly for a certain type of say male rock critic invalidates it. Yep. 100%. And it's, it's unbelievable kind of looking back at different, you know, reviews now and looking back at, you know, different, you know, I don't even know, like there were like wars and letters to the editor where people were like arguing about Duran Duran in newspapers because yeah, they were like, Oh, you know, young women like them. So there's no way this could be good. Like, this is just trash basically, you know, because young women have no taste. Like there's so much condescension and so much sexism and so much just, I don't know, just like both of those things that it's just, it's, it's like, oh, you can't like, like there was an article and like, they were like, basically like, you know, you can't like the clash and Duran Duran, like their fans wouldn't know the clash and Duran Duran. I think like, we call you know, this gatekeeping. Right. Mm-hmm. It was total gatekeeping. And, you know, it was just very, just very snotty, you know, and it's mm-hmm. funny because, you know, we're not that, you know, obviously they got compared to the Beatles a lot. And so we were like, you know, what, 20, 20 some years. I guess, removed from the Beatles kind of coming to America. And it's like everyone had forgotten sort of their trajectory almost. It's like, yeah, yeah that they the were end, like the original girl crazy, you know, mania group. Ma- yeah. yeah, exactly. And look what they ended up this like, you know, artistically important band. It's like people kind of forgot that part. They just were like, you know, oh, you know, and, you know, Duran Duran played dance music. And there was such a backlash against disco in the mainstream too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Duran Duran were unabashed fans of Chic and not. Rogers and Bernard Edwards and talk them up. And, you know, there was also, you know, kind of that backlash a little bit and they were, you know, and they, they knew what they liked and they were very confident too, you know? And so I think a lot of people didn't know what to make of them either. Right. Now Rio is now considered kind of to be Duran Duran's opus. When did that start to emerge that recognition That's actually a very good question. Um, And I think it's just something that happened gradually over time. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, you know, the, the, we didn't talk about the cover at all, but I think the the Patrick Nagel cover is very, you know, emblematic of the eighties. I mean, to me, it's very, it is a salon, a salon image. It is a hair salon, a nail salon image. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it, it, that his style is so, like you said, emblematic of the 80s. It's something we uh, associate with a lot of things about the 80s, but it maybe its most prominent feature was being on this album cover. Absolutely. And it's, you know, and Pat, so he, for people who don't know, he died in like 1984. And so he died very young. Yeah, he had a heart attack, um, I think after like working out. Wow. And he was very young when See, he died. You just should not work out. I think that we can <laughs> all take a lesson, lesson from that. Cool. We get it. Do not work out. Okay. Don't be a fool. Um, so, you know, so there was that kind of element, I think is kind of the eighties is ebbed and flowed. You know, there's a little bit of that, you know, everyone's like, oh, that's really cool. But I, I, you know, I think it's just sort of as Duran Duran's fortunes have sort of ebbed and flowed and their coolness is sort of, you know, gone up and down. Uh, you know, I think Rio, I, I think now because people respect the eighties and they respect them a lot more, they can, people can look at it and be like, yeah, this is a really good record. Like it's very cohesive. It says a lot, you know, there's just, it's, it's the whole package, you know, it's the music and the lyrics and the aesthetic and just everything about it. And so, and I think, you know, they've made so many records, they've made so many good records and records I like, and they're all different. And there was just something, it's, it's just something intangible. It's almost like you can't put your finger on why it's such a good record. There's some magic to it. I tried, I guess, in a book, I guess. I can say that. <laughs> yeah. If I you, wrote if, an entire book on this, you know, so I have. And let's remind the listeners that, yeah. You've done the they, impossible thing. Your book is a, a great place to, to start with trying to, fi- to figure that out. And I want to ask about your journey with, with this book. 
And I, I'm curious about, you know, you this book, fine, you've been working on it. You know, if, if we were to take the germ of the idea, we're going back, you know, a, a 15 good 15 years. years. Yeah. And, you know, to, for it to finally come out and, you know, for it to get the strong attention and, and press mm-hmm. that it did, I'm just, I would just like to give you the moment to re- reflect on that and, and tell us, you know, how that was for you for this to finally happen, you know, all this time yeah. leading up and then it becomes a real thing that you can hold in your hand. Nobody has actually asked me that. That's a very good question. Mm. Um, you know, I, I see I'm almost speechless. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, because I was so in the weeds of working on it and this for so long, the fact like when I actually, and like, just because of the way supply chain is like, I didn't get a book until like a couple of days before it came out. So I was wow. just like, am I going to actually have my book on the release date? <laughs> and I did doubt if it's did, real. Yeah. Yeah. Just because, which is, you know, has nothing totally out of my control, out of my publisher's control. Cause just the way the world is. And it was like, I mean, it's almost overwhelming because it's like, Oh, I wrote this thing. Okay. I spent all this time. Like, cause I, I probably spent more time and more effort and more like editing, doing this project than like anything I've ever done because it was so important to me. I mean, just because, you know, I wanted to write a good book because, you know, Duran Duran deserved a good book, but I also was like, oh my God, this has to be good because I've been talking about it for 15 years. I need to like make sure that this is really good. But it's, it's I'm so grateful that people do want to talk about it and do mm-hmm. like it, you know, cause you, you put out a book, you don't know, you have no way, especially during a pandemic, you know, you don't know how people are going to react to it. You know, I mean, you could, it could, you know, do nothing, you know? And so the fact that people are like, I'm really excited to read this is, you know, I'm really enjoying this. Like I got some like really moving emails, like people saying, you know, I understand my wife better because oh of this. Book. Oh, wow. Yeah. People were like, you know, I'm buying this book because a friend of mine passed away and we played Rio at her funeral. So I'm buying like books for, you know, our friend group, you know, I went with my best friend to buy this book. Like, like, that's amazing. You know, I mean, hear, yeah. 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 Like, it's like, I almost like don't know how to react because I'm just like, well, you know, thank you. You know, like this is, that's really meaningful to me. Like that, I mean, I, you know, that wasn't my, I had no idea what the intention was. You know, you put a book out in the world and then it's, you know, what the world's going to do what it's going to do with it. But, you know, it, I think that just like, that speaks to kind of how special the record is, how special Duran Duran is mm-hmm. and just what it means to people. And like what, you know, what, what music, like a band that you loved as a teenager, you know, that, that sticks with you. And there were a lot of people who were teenagers when that record came out who were like, yeah, you know, I really remembered why I liked this. I came back to the band, you know, I came back to my younger self. Mm-hmm. And so that's like, I, that is just like, uh, you know, that is so gratifying to me because that's just like, that's a, such an honor. Like, I'm so happy that I was able to give that to someone. That's amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's been, it's been really cool. And I've had, you know, a lot of people be like, you know, I wasn't really allowed to say when I was growing up that I was Duran Duran fan, but yeah. you know, I, I was a fan, you know, we have, you know, the, the secret fans who are like, I I'm, I can say, I like them now, you know, they're cool. Stand up and, and be proud. Duranis, yeah. as oh, they wow. say. John Taylor is a really good bass player. I always thought so. <laughs> uh. and, you, and you know, the the like we said, the timing is so great. You you get yeah. to be a part of this moment. Are you gonna go? The induction is in LA this year. Do you think you're gonna make it? I, you know, COVID willing, I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were there in Cleveland last year, uh, and apparently there is no COVID in Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> isn't yeah. that amazing? Yeah. I know. Isn't, that ceremony is education. Yeah. Yes. It was never it's the reason why I haven't gone anywhere in like two and a half years because, mm-hmm. yeah, there's no COVID. Yeah. Um, Cleveland, Cleveland is business as usual. Um, but no, I right. mean, I, I, I think the ceremony this year is going to be super Duran heavy. I think it's going to be really fun. It's kind of like the year when Rush was inducted and it was basically like a Rush concert in LA. Yeah. I, I feel like it's going to be Duran's year. They're, gonna, I think- they're headlining, like I would say for sure. Okay. I see no other okay. uh, outcome. But there's going to be people flying in from all over the country. I mean, it's going to be great, you know, because I yeah. think everyone, everyone is so proud of the band. And I think that's kind of the coolest thing that everyone is like, because I mean, because you know, like when some bands get in, everyone grumbles and it's just like, okay, whatever. And like people are like, genuinely so happy for the band it's you know it's like Mm -hmm. finally it's about time but there's like so much gratitude for them like it's it's been very interesting to watch it'll be cool i would say we'll see you there but the ongoing drama of this show is that we don't know if we're (laughs) even though we live in los angeles no kidding we don't know if we're going because we we both have to, we both are attending. We are attending the, a wedding. Oh, the day before. Oh, the day in before New, in New Orleans. In New Orleans. 
<laughs> so, so you'd have to like go to the wedding. It's like, you know, you're like, you know, running in the airport, like while wearing your like, you know, formal wear. Well, yeah, so, I, 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 it's it just, would be the next day. So it's not like it's feasible, but also like, do we want to do that? The question is, do we, you know, it's, it's interesting that I am more amenable to it than Joe seems to be, which (laughs) it's a real reversal. We'll have a hard time to believe. Yeah. I'm leaning towards not going to the ceremony actually. Whereas Kristen's probably the one pushing that we do. I'm like, we should go. I I love Dolly Parton. I not not I like I haven't seen her before, but you know, and kind of the narrative of our podcast, Benatar has been such a huge part yes. of that, and, and your uh, you know incredulous uh, outrage towards her <laughs> snubbing, you know, and, and that it's finally happening. It's finally <laughs> happening. So you know, there's and your things. friend moved the wedding. That's the question. That's yeah, you know, realize question. what you have going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this. Yeah, listen, have we, we talked have a lot- to them at all? We have, have we suggested Should we that? get them on the show to hash oh it out? Oh my gosh, to hash it out. Honestly, not a bad idea. <laughs> to be like, you're not listening to my schedule. Like we have things that we need to Listen, do. you know, this is a long in the <laughs> making. So yeah, well, actually we don't know, but uh, I, I, what I'll say is whether or not we go, I, I hope that you make it and that it's uh, a wonderful experience for you. It feels like the a culmination in a way. It is. And you know, I've never, I've only been to the um, ceremony in Cleveland you know, cause it's, it's, it's local to me. So it's one of those things where it's like, you know, when the year sits in New York, they used to stream it at the rock hall. So it was great. So I could still just, you know, basically watch an, an HBO feed, like in the rock yeah. hall lobby, mm-hmm. which was awesome. And, you know, right. fans are there, it's fun. So I've never been in LA ceremony. So I'm like, well, that's kind of cool too. You know, it's yeah, they don't different. do it very often. They've only done no. it twice before. So it's a, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's an experience. We're in the mix now. We are in the mix. I'm jealous. So you can just basically, you know, hop in the car and that's go. What, that's yeah, what, yeah. If we, we were thought. not in New Orleans, <laughs> that's what we I thought. Mean, it's, it's just like such a wild time. I really can't believe this. This is crazy. But, you know, but, you I know, don't know. We'll see TBD. how it goes. TBD. We'll see how it goes. Um, but what matters now is, Annie, thank you so much for joining us. This was really great and lovely to talk to you. You as well. Thank you for having me. Um, the, the book is, uh, you know, Rio, uh, part of the 33 and a third series, anything else you'd like to plug or your social media where people can follow you? Probably Twitter. Cause that's where I am the most. And that's just at Annie Zaleski. And then I have an Instagram. It's just Annie Zaleski author. And I post a lot of Duran Duran ephemera, I guess Ooh. I would say. Ooh. There you go. It's basically like, Oh, look, I got this cool seven inch. Check it out. Hey, nice. there's this cool ad. So yeah. So it's just, it's Very just fun. Good. I'm sure our listeners would love that. Truly. Uh, and, and they know that they can follow us at Rock All Pod on Twitter and Instagram. RockAllPod at gmail.com is the email. If you want Kristen to see your message, you need to designate that somewhere in there. Otherwise, I'm not going to forward it. She does not want to read it. Uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us. Five stars only. Anything less would be cruel Boo. and rude. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo. Thank you to Isu Kim for the music. And thank you to Pantheon Podcasts for hosting us. I'm Joe Pozzala. I'm Kristen Studdard. And who cares? about the rock call. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.